The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Emily Day, and this is an episode from the Lawfare Archives for November 6, 2021. This week, the Supreme Court denied a petition for review in American Civil Liberties Union versus United States. The petition asked the Supreme Court to review the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court and the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court of Review's refusal to release court records to the ACLU, and Justices Neil Gorsuch and Sonia Sotomayor dissented, saying they would have granted review. For this week, I chose an episode from June 14, 2014, in which a panel of experts debated surveillance reform and whether to add a more adversarial process to FISA court proceedings. I'm Wells Bennett, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, June 14, 2014. You just heard from Mark Zwillinger, a lawyer in private practice with experience in surveillance matters. On Tuesday, during this year's Computers Freedom and Privacy Conference, Zwillinger took part in a panel discussion entitled Case For and Against a FISA Advocate. Joining him in the debate were also Alex Abdo of the American Civil Liberties Union and Amy Stepanovich of Access. The discussion was moderated by our own Steve Vladek. The panel discussed every aspect of the question of whether, and to what extent, non-government lawyers should participate in litigation before the secret Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. For example, the effect of the pending USA Freedom Act on the status quo, the role of a court-appointed amicus versus that of an advocate, the level of access needed for outside advocates to function effectively, and their ability unilaterally to get involved in proceedings before the FISC. You'll hear all about that and more on this week's Lawfare Podcast, Episode 79, The Case For and Against a FISA Advocate. Okay, so we're going to get started with the next panel. Uh, good morning. I'm Steve Vladek. Uh, I'm a professor of law and the associate dean for scholarship at American University of Washington College of Law. And this panel is titled The Case For and Against a FISA Special Advocate. Um, in a minute, I'll briefly introduce the, the three uh, very, very special experts who we have to discuss this topic. But I thought I'd start by giving a little bit of background. There's been a lot of discussion, obviously, about surveillance reform both here at the CFP conference and also just generally over the last 12 months since the disclosures by Edward Snowden uh, of various controversial surveillance programs conducted by the U.S. government, uh, almost always through the offices of the NSA, um, and usually under the supervision of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, the FISA Court or the FISC. We should just pick one, um, but they seem to be both in vogue. Um, And the FISC, of course, is this um, 11-judge court in D.C. that operates mostly in secret, and that at least historically had operated almost entirely ex parte 
uh, meaning that the government was the only party that would usually go before the FISA court to obtain some kind of surveillance authorization. Um, one of the things that changed after 9-11 and that we've come to learn a lot more about thanks to the Snowden disclosures uh, is the change in the kinds of programs that the FISA court was tasked with overseeing. So whereas before 9-11, the FISA court most of the time was simply resolving whether a particular person was an agent of a foreign power, or at least whether the government had probable cause to support that showing, uh, under Section 215 of the Patriot Act, the FISA court now is issuing production orders to phone companies or other businesses that have nothing to do with any individual person. Under Section 702 of the FISA Amendments Act of 2008, the FISA court is signing off on directives issued to uh, electronic communication service providers um, that have nothing to do with an individual target and that are instead directed at large quantities uh, of communication. And so for the first time, the FISA court was involved in signing off on bulk as opposed to individualized surveillance. Um, in the process, Congress authorized the participation for the first time of an adversary, uh, of someone to actually oppose the government's position in the FISA court, of someone to actually challenge the statutory or constitutional interpretation, of someone to actually represent the interests of at least someone other than the government in those proceedings. Uh, the problem is that as we learned from some of the disclosures last summer, before Snowden came along, there had never been a single recipient of a 215 production order, uh, like the phone companies that had objected and that had availed itself of this adversarial process. There had never been a recipient of a 702 directive um, that had availed itself of this process. Indeed, there had only been one recipient of any of these proceedings um, that had shown up and objected. Uh, and we'll hear, I guess, a little bit about that, sort of, uh, from one of our panelists. Um, with that in mind, one of the proposals that has been percolating around Washington, and I guess it made, way out, made its way out here to uh, uh, you know, Warrington, um, seriously, um, is the notion that in addition to the various substantive reforms to surveillance authorities, Congress should also be seriously thinking about procedural reforms to how the FISA court operates. That if we're going to have this super secret court that is signing off on these programs behind closed doors, there should be more adversarial process. There should be more opportunity for voices contrary to the government to be heard. Um, and in various forms, this has come to be known as the FISA special advocate. Um, and so the idea behind today's panel is to talk a bit about the special advocate as such, uh, what it might look like, how it could help, what some of the objections are, um, where it doesn't go far enough in the eyes of those who are pushing for more reforms, to sort of get a better sense of, of the stakes of this conversation of where we're going um, and of where we think we should end up. So that's our plan. Um, and to get us there, we've assembled three, I think, real luminaries in this area. Um, Amy Stepanovich from Access Now, I know is known to most of you guys already, is one of the co-chairs of the CFP conference. Uh, to Amy's right, my left is Mark Zwillinger from Zwilgen PLLC. Um, Mark, uh, among many other claims to fame, is actually one of the only lawyers to ever represent a non-government party before the FISA court, at least before the last six months. Um, and Mark can, I think, say a little bit about that. Um, and then to my right is Alex Abdo, um, who's a senior staff attorney from the ACLU um, with specialty and expertise in privacy, surveillance, communications, and so on. So hopefully this will give a, a good range of views on this question. Um, and Mark, I want to start with you. So. I think we, we now know, I think, that you represented Yahoo um, before the FISA court uh, and the FISA court of review in 2008 in what became the In Re Directives case. Can you say a bit about 
the value, in your view, of adversarial litigation especially? Um, what, what worked, what didn't work, and what you'd like to see happen? Sure, and, and just to further elaborate in the background, I've now been involved in three adversarial proceedings in the FISA court. Um, I think one was sort of a war and the other two were, were skirmishes, but I'll briefly describe what they were and why they informed my view that in, you know, a special advocate is really needed. Um, the first one, as you, as you mentioned, was the challenge to the Protect America Act. And for five years I couldn't talk about it because even the fact that I was involved with the challenge was classified. But as a result of the disclosures, uh, the government declassified the fact that Yahoo was the provider and that I was the counsel for the provider. So that involved the challenge to the precursor to the FISA Amendments Act, the precursor to the 702 Directives Program, which was remarkably similar in every way except even slightly looser and less protective of U.S. persons. And uh, Yahoo had refused to comply with a directive under the Protect America Act and challenged the constitutionality of that both in the FISA court and then when it lost to the FISA court of review. And the only things I can still say about it is what's contained in the decision in Ray Directives because until it's through this moment that's the only piece uh, of the whole litigation that's been declassified. And at the time people didn't recognize the opinion you know, for what it meant, and I was certainly not going to go out there and promote it, um, A, we lost, and B, um, it, it would have, you know, put, put me at some personal risk that I was out there providing information on this decision that no one seemed to know or care about. But um, the, the other two skirmishes were the actions after the Snowden disclosures to get the record unsealed in both the FISA court and the FISA court of review, separate motion, separate practice to get that unsealed and while the government has agreed to do a declassification review and the court has agreed to unseal some of the documents, it hasn't happened yet. And the third skirmish was representing Yahoo, but at the same time there are a whole bunch of other providers suing for additional transparency in being able to disclose the number of process that it has received. So I've been in front of the FISC three times in front of the FISA Court of Review, once or twice depending on how you count the unsealing request. And when I testified before the President's Civil Liberties Oversight Board, I made the kind of offhanded remark that um, litigating in the FISA court is like sending a letter, letter to Santa Claus. It requires a lot of blind faith, which I made particularly because it was provocative and would get quoted, but let me unpack that a little bit and, and tell you why litigating in the FISA court is so difficult. First, um, representing a party in the FISA court, you don't have access to any body of law that has existed outside of the FISA court. Uh, I mean, except for what's existed outside of the FISA court. That is, it was news to me, just like everyone else, when decisions came down from the FISC that had been declassified. There was no special right as a litigant uh, for a party to get access to those decisions. So you're litigating kind of in the blind. The government knows what the FISA court has ruled before, but, but the party doesn't. Second, the government has an exceptionally cozy relationship with the FISA court. Not true at the court of review. It feels like you get a much better shake and a fair shake at the Court of Review. They don't meet very often. They don't meet ex parte with the government. But the FISA Court does all the time. So typically, even in these small skirmishes, we'd say, what's the government's position on this? And the government would say, well, we've got to check and then run it by the court. So you don't run by the court the position they're about to argue in front of the court, right? But that's the government's instinctual response is that they consult with the court in an advisory capacity, and it's not a pure litigation capacity. The third reason is that the government responds to nearly everything you do in the FISA court with a, we need to make a classified filing. We can't explain this to you. We need to make a classified filing and we will answer to the court uh, any questions it has about the filing in, in an ex parte setting. And then you have to try to get that classified filing unsealed. And the government doesn't believe that merely litigating in the FISA court gives you a need to know. 
right? I need to know what you just filed because we're litigating against each other. But that's not the government's position. The government's position is you have to have the right level of clearance and a need to know for operational purposes, and you don't have that need. So that's the standard recourse, and then you're fighting that. And the fourth reason, um, which I think is you know, readily apparent but bears repeating, is that federal judges are used to hearing two sides of a question. And even when we, I, I had this observation about you know, our own discussions, when we have discussions about what 702 reform should look like, it's the left and the center left arguing about it for, for weeks or months, and then we come to some conclusion. And that conclusion is preordained that it's going to be between the position of the far left and the center left. And then we feel like all the negotiation is done, and we don't, we're not going to negotiate anymore because we've now hammered it all out. That's what happens at the FISA court. The government, in its oversight DOJ role, is probably center-right compared to the NSA or the intelligence agencies who are far-right, and the judges, who until recently have all been Republican appointees, are also sort of in that spectrum. And they hammer everything out and come to a conclusion, and by the time it's presented to a provider, it's preordained and pre-negotiated, and it's already done. So, of course, the answer is going to line itself up somewhere on that spectrum. And, and that's why I believe there really needs to be a voice before the FISA court, and we'll talk later about what that voice uh, is like and how institutional it is, and I don't want to monopolize the panel time. But that, that's from my experience the reasons why an advocate of some sort is necessary. So can I just, um, uh, thanks, Mark, can I push back on one piece of this? I mean, so I guess one question that I would have had coming into this is why, at least in the context of, say, 215 orders, 702 directives, why the providers are insufficient and I guess what I mean by that is, you know, it's one thing if the providers have the option of showing up and choose not to. Why would it not be enough, for example, for Congress to say, we're just going to mandate that providers um, critique, that providers object, um, in order to create a record and to litigate? I mean, do you, do you think that could actually have the desired effect? I don't think it would. One, it would be, you know, requiring the providers to object places a burden on providers that doesn't seem to be, you know, right for the providers to bear. They should object when, you know, they believe something is wrong, not because the law requires it. I think it makes them somewhat of a government actor. And two, they have a very limited vantage point. I mean, the provider is not in a position to do the balancing test on the government side of the equation as to what security, uh, the security apparatus needs or, you know, or weigh the one side of the scale. All they can see is what uh, how invasive it is to their users or what they're required to provide. And the provider's interest has typically been both as a proxy for its users and third-party standing and for its own interest, that this surveillance is especially burdensome or you're making us an agent of law enforcement or you're diverting all these engineers from their other tasks. It's not pure this is, you know, a constitutional question, although that's what, you know, certainly Yahoo put some arguments about right. constitutionality uh, in all of its briefs. Uh, but the provider's not the party. If we're going to say we need to protect the rights of the United States persons, then we should appoint somebody to do that. So, Alice, let me, let me bring you in on this, because, I mean, it seems like historically, you know, folks might react to the notion of ex parte in-camera proceedings with some trepidation. That's not that unusual, right, historically in the context of, of warrants, um, right, that even in an ordinary criminal case, usually if the government needs to get a search warrant, they go to the judge ex parte and in-camera, they get the warrant. And part of the notion is that um, at some point, the, the target of the search, right, will have notice of the search. They'll have a chance to collaterally object, either in a criminal proceeding or perhaps in a civil suit. Um, does that fiction break down in the FISA context? Does that add more strength to the argument for having some kind of special advocate who is involved in the FISA proceedings directly? Yeah, I think that's exactly right, that, that fiction does break down. There is not generally an opportunity in the FISA context for there to be meaningful adversarial process when it comes to 
uh, orders issued to companies or, or to anyone else to produce information that's useful to the government. Um, you know, but, but taking a step back for a second, I agree with everything that Mark just said, and I think it addresses one of the problems that we've learned about the FISA Court over the last year, and the problem I think that goes to the core of the question you just asked me, uh, Steve, which is that uh, you know, one of the problems is that there isn't an adversarial process. Uh, fixing that process, I think, would make the system of secret oversight that the FISC is a part of better, but we would still be left with a system of secret oversight. And I think one of the things we've learned over the last year that you have uh, uh, so eloquently articulated in other uh, forums is that Another breakdown uh, is that secret oversight is often not enough to address certain forms of uh, changes to the law or surveillance authorizations. We can only get so far with uh, secret oversight. Uh, and that problem is a much harder one to address. You know, it, it, to my mind, there are certain questions that democracies uh, address in public. When we make a shift, for example, from uh, targeted surveillance, the sort of surveillance that the FISC had authorized for 35 years or 25 years prior to 9-11, from that sort of surveillance to bulk collection, that that's a question that deserves public consideration and public judicial decision making. Uh, and so making the secret process more robust wouldn't address, in my mind, that concern, uh, the need for uh, certain forms of greater transparency. I don't think everything the FISC does should be transparent uh, to everyone, but I think certain things the FISC does should be, particularly when it comes to authorizing uh, programs of surveillance as opposed to, uh, you know, targeted surveillance. Where to draw the right line, I think, is a hard question. Uh, but I think, you know, I, I, uh, th th that shift from targeted to bulk should have been discussed publicly. The notion that some of the laws that everyone had understood uh, to authorize individualized acquisition, that they in fact authorize bulk acquisition, uh, that should have been debated publicly and uh, litigated publicly because there's a certain form of accountability to judicial decision making that only comes from public accountability. Uh, you know, judges are not only used to having an adversary, uh, an adversarial process in front of them, they're also used to being part of a, uh, of, uh, a common law system where their decisions are not just uh, analyzed by secret peers to see whether they're correct, but they're subject to uh, critical review by other judges in other contexts uh, to see whether the principle holds true or needs to be revised. And that's broken down. So, I mean, Alex, how does that? I mean, how does that last? I, I guess I, I agree with you in general, but I guess on, on the specifics, how does that last point square with, for example, some of the Guantanamo habeas litigation, where there have been heavily, if not entirely, classified decisions, um, where we get, as for example, in the Latif case, um, a public redacted opinion where I think it's like 75% of the words are blacked out. Um, you know, is it just that these opinions are? anathema to our system, or is it that there's sort of a necessary consequence of having judicial review in this highly classified, highly secretive sphere? Well, I, I think you often see secrecy, but you see it predominantly when there are secret facts. You, it, up until recently, you, you didn't see secret uh, legal analysis, at least not that frequently. You, you know, sometimes applying law to facts requires greater secrecy than just considering um, you know, strict legal analysis. But I think the Guantanamo cases are a great example of the sort of secrecy that we've seen for a long time, and although uh, we should resist uh, as a general matter, we'll understand that it's appropriate in certain settings. When it comes to legal analysis uh, and uh, you know, decision-making about the meaning of the Fourth Amendment, that should generally be public. And sure, the NSA will argue that at times, even disclosing legal analysis uh, may reveal something about what they do. Uh, but in democracies, uh, that's a cost of doing business. You could have argued that in the 1970s, 
FISA itself should have been secret. The law that authorizes most of foreign intelligence surveillance should have been secret because it reveals something about the way the NSA operates. Uh, but that's not a, a type of secrecy we accommodate in a democracy. Uh, and I think we're, we're seeing more and more of that, that, that sort of secrecy. Somehow this just turned into a panel about OLC memos. Um, <laughs> so, so Amy, I want to I wanna loop in on, on this because I guess, you know, I'm, I'm curious where from your perspective, you know, as so on the advocacy side, right, and on the, on the question of the best way forward, I mean, it seems like, you know, you've heard a couple of fairly strong voices in support of some kind of special advocate, at least as a necessary, if not sufficient, reform. You know, where, where do you come in on this? So it's very interesting. We actually had a really, um, maybe not as strong as we would like it to be, but a strong provision in the initial USA Freedom Act, the USA Freedom Act that was pending in the House for six months and there was never a vote on it. Um, when that, that provision finally came to the floor for a vote under the manager's amendment, the Office of the Special Advocate provision was stripped. Um, and it was replaced by an amicus provision that was very, very weak, um, had no transparency measures built in, which makes it um, difficult from Alex's perspective because not only do you have this office, but you have, or without the public debate, but you have no idea how the office is being used, um, how often, for what purposes. So they, this is um, the provision that is now in the bill being sent to the Senate, um, likely to be considered in the Senate, although they're still ostensibly looking at the original USA Freedom Act, it's very likely they'll get the same um, version introduced in the Senate to be voted on. So you have very problematic procedures. And one of the things um, a lot of the coalitions have talked about is how the special advocate um, might be a Band-Aid. Um, it's not necessarily going to fix the problem. We need more public debate. We need more public information. But you have this decision now over whether it's going to be um, a strong Band-Aid, something that's good, something that actually um, moves the ball forward, or if it's going to be something that really just covers everything up and doesn't actually provide any extra oversight, doesn't provide any accountability. And that's really important. The other thing that I think that this provision could do, um, and this is taking a step back, we saw that, at least with 250, with the bulk collection program, there wasn't even an opinion that justified the program published by the FISA court until this year, because they never had to be forced to do the legal analysis to say, which to write is, the legal Which analysis. is why I always find especially ironic the notion that Congress ratified the legal opinion. Exactly, Congress because there is no legal exist. opinion. Right. So this um, office or potential office actually has the capability to potentially push forward for all of these opinions to actually be published. So we have something to to ratify or really to argue against from my perspective. So, so it's, it's worth starting with the status quo, right? So the status quo right now is there's no such thing as a special advocate, um, right? The only adversarial participation comes in the form of lawyers like Mark when they're representing um, service providers, uh, uh, recipients of production orders, et cetera. Um, nothing stops the FISA court from appointing an amicus already, right? There's no reason why they can't. They've done it in a couple of cases at least. Um, and so one of the things, I mean, Amy's, Amy points out the, the manager's amendment to the USA Freedom Act. I mean, one of the remarkable things about that is it says it'll be an amicus, and the amicus's participation shall be mandatory um, in cases like the ones Alice is worried about, cases that are programmatic and bulk uh, collection-oriented. But um, the FISA judge is allowed to certify in those cases that amicus participation will not be helpful. Um, and that certification need not be public. It is not reviewable, um, right? It is not subject to any, it just, you know, sign your name on the line and there's no amicus at all. Um, and so is that any change from the status quo? It really isn't. In fact, it's, it's a step backward because you're going to get Congress, you're going to get the intelligence community saying that, look, we put in this great amicus provision and we fixed the oversight problem in the FISA court. 
There is now a party that can come in and say the other side, but you're not really fixing anything because you're not changing much. So, so um, and I feel like Mark has something to say about that, and I think he's about to disagree with me. No, no, I usually am, but not right now. Um, no, th what I wanted to say is that think about the FISA Court of Review. You know, two cases have gone up to it. Two cases have been published. They've sat as a panel. The FISA Court could sit on banc anytime it wants, but the FISA Court has not, sit on, has not sat on banc, and the FISA Court has never seen fit to publish its own opinions. So if you got a special advocate who could take the decisions of the FISA court to the court of review, you would get a much more, I think, a system and we'd have a lot more faith in it. Would, there would be review, so the court itself, the district court wouldn't be the court of last resort, which you know, isn't in the regular federal judiciary system, so I don't know why it would be here. And you would get a, a group that's used to sitting as a panel, making decisions, three judges, not one, and, in, and a propensity to publish. So having the advocate with an appellate right cures some problems that having the ability to appoint an amicus at the FISA court level does not solve. Although the appellate part raises some problems too, right, which we'll, which we'll get to. So, so I guess I want to ask you guys a series of questions about how you would design this position, right, to, to sort of to maximize its effect. So let me sort of list all the questions and then we'll go one at a time. Um, so the first is, should the special advocate be an amicus or a party? Um, I think that's, that's a good place to start. Um, if it's a party, whom should it represent? Right? That is to say, which party is it actually acting on behalf of? Um, would you have the special advocate be, as Amy mentioned, the USA Freedom Act initially proposed, an office within the government, either perhaps the executive branch or the judicial branch, or some kind of informal cadre of outside security cleared lawyers, again like Mark, um, perhaps analogous to a CJA panel in criminal cases or something like that? Um, in which cases should it be allowed and required to participate and appeals, right? Those are my five sort of buckets. Um, so why don't we start with the, the first one, amicus or party? So, you know, I, I think there are really, I would say, three requirements for the advocate. I think, the, you know, the advocate position needs to be truly adverse to the government's position, mm -hmm. needs to have full access to uh, classified material necessary to inform the court, beyond, you know, uh, perhaps as Mark suggested, just the classified materials at issue in that case because prior precedent of, of the fish might be relevant. And the advocate needs to be uh, technologically sophisticated, needs to understand the implications of, uh, you know, surveillance for, for uh, other areas outside of whatever is before the court. And I think those first two requirements, uh, full access and meaningfully adverse, are going to be in conflict from the government's perspective because they're not going to, I think to have an advocate that is truly adverse to the government, ideally that position would be outside of government. I think the government would be very reluctant to agree to a, um, uh, a setup in which someone outside the government, however, is given full access to classified material. Uh, so it, it might be that we, you know, we face difficulties getting a meaningful proposal that accomplishes both of those objectives. And I don't know what the middle ground is between those two. Uh, my, you know, but I, and I don't know whether that uh, influences the decision as between an amicus and a party. I think you could have an amicus that is meaningfully adverse with full access, uh, although you probably would get more adversity uh, with a party. Do, but don't, I mean, also, even that the intelligence community would be reluctant to any kind of full access rule, even if the special advocate was anywhere within the government, since presumably it wouldn't be within the intelligence community? I, I, I think they certainly would, but they probably would be uh, more willing to have that discussion uh, for someone within government bound by... Um, you know, a bit more than just the rules that someone signs. Well, and the Espionage Act. Right. Although that, you know, that, that, that obviously doesn't constrain everyone. Yeah. But, but I think that's, you, you put your finger on it, which is that as an outside amicus, I don't think the government will be willing to give 
individual lawyers who have other interests other than being in front of the FISA court, the type of full access needed to do the job right. And you trust the lawyers in the National Security Division of the Department of Justice to go before the FISA court. They're not part of the intelligence community. And there's sometimes a little bit of a oversight, hostile relationship between the intelligence community and DOJ, even though you don't see that from the outside, but it, 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 they provide a check. So I don't know why an institutional uh, advocate who was housed within either an equivalent of a federal defender's office or a DOJ NSD division would be inherently less trustworthy than the DOJ lawyers themselves. So, so we skipped ahead to the third question. Um, I want to come back just before we get there. I mean, so, so this sounds like we want it to be a party. Right, that is to say, um, someone who's actually has a concrete representational interest and not just a friend of the court. I mean, is that is that fair? I think that is fair, and it not only has to be a party, but it has to be a party. And this is again, I think, skipping ahead to your fourth point. Um, but it has to be a party that can act unilaterally. Mm -hmm. um, it has to be a party that has the authority to come in without being requested when necessary, and actually voice its very, very contrary to the government point of view, um, because um, as you said, the provision that is in there now that allows the FISA court judges to say that they do not, to certify that they do not need um, an amicus to come in is incredibly problematic. All right, so, so, so let's, let's note one point of consensus, should be a party. Um, so, so let me get to the trickier question. Who, who does the advocate represent? Um, and it seems to me that there are at least two choices. Um, so one is uh, the public interest at large, which is to say the advocate is tasked with acting in whatever way he or she deems to be in the best interest of protecting American civil liberties and the rule of law and other lovely sayings that we can come up with. Um, the other is to be more specific and say the advocate is specifically tasked with representing U.S. persons whose communications are being, would be intercepted um, or whose data would be collected by the surveillance authority in question. Um, do we have a view as to which of those two formulations we prefer? Can it be somewhere in the middle? Sure, <laughs> but, sure but what would that look like? So I think it's, instead of being the public at large, I think it does have to be whoever is subject to any given surveillance order. So under IA215 bulk telephone, telephone metadata collection order, it would be the entire United States public. But under other surveillance orders, you could get smaller populations. However, I don't think it is necessarily um, proper to confine that if you're going to make it more specific to only U.S. persons because FISA court um, largely does not deal with U.S. persons. So I think it should be be larger than that, but I don't think it should be always the public interest at large. So, so perhaps, I mean, so perhaps you could adapt, I mean, FISA elsewhere refers to aggrieved persons, right, as individuals who are um, affected by, right, the communications activities authorized by the, the surveillance activities authorized by the statute. So perhaps it could be any aggrieved person, uh, under the statute? You know, I, I suppose if I had a preference, I think the overriding consideration when Congress considers this will be uh, which of those two options they think will uh, be lawful. The, you know, the question for the first will be whether uh, it satisfies Article III standing requirements, and the question for the second is whether you can have essentially a guardian, a guardian ad litem representing someone who has no idea they're being represented, mm -hmm. um, even if they can't voluntarily consent under, you know, uh, under U.S. contract law or U.S. law, they still in theory, should know that they're being represented. I would have a preference for the first, just because I think it would reflect relaxed understandings of uh, standing requirements, and it would have, be a form of public understanding in this country that I think would solve some of the problems with... Tell us about the ACLU's problems with standing. <laughs> you, you, you know, right. You know, one of the difficulties in the national security area has been getting into court to have public judicial decision-making, even when it comes to programs that we know about. 
setting aside programs that we don't know about. You know, and we, we fought for five years to challenge the FISA Amendments Act, um, and we ultimately lost on standing 5-4 in the Supreme Court because uh, our clients, though they were very likely uh, individuals whose communications were swept up uh, under programmatic surveillance of the NSA, couldn't prove it. Um, I, I would favor a relaxed standing requirement, or rather I would interpret the Article III requirement differently than does the current Supreme Court uh, to allow those sorts of, of challenges, particularly in contexts in which otherwise there will be no uh, judicial decision on but, the law. But I mean, it's worth stressing, so let's just be clear, because I know we're not all federal courts nerds like I am, right? Um, it, it's worth stressing that the standing issue is not a problem in the FISA court itself, right? That, that the government is the moving party in the FISA court, and so in almost any form, the addition, the insertion of another lawyer into the proceeding doesn't remove standing that previously existed, right? The standing issue is, pro is only really relevant when we get to Mark's point about the importance of appeals. And then the question becomes, on whose behalf, right, in what interest um, is the appellant acting? Um, just, I mean, just to give you guys a, a, an analogy, remember that when the Supreme Court heard the Prop 8 case last year, the reason why the court ducked, the reason why the court did not rule on the ultimate merits of California's ban on gay marriage was because it held that the appellants, who were just a random assortment of local government officials, um, didn't have standing to appeal, right? And so that's one of the concerns with the advocate here, right, Mark? Yeah, I mean, this, this is a, you're right, this is a real legal geeky point, but um, if you try to expand the standing beyond third-party standing, which is what in in-rate directives the FISA Court of Review said that Yahoo had third-party standing on behalf of its users to articulate their Fourth Amendment interests. So third-party standing means that you're litigating on behalf of a group of people who are adversely affected and who have rights under the Constitution. If you try to expand to your first formulation of the public interest at large, you need a form of government interest standing. That is, you're going to need a statute that says this is the government's interest and this person is you know, appointed to represent those interests. And I do think under the Supreme Court's Article III decisions, you'll have a lot of trouble um, maintaining standing for an advocate on behalf of non-U.S. persons who have no rights under the Constitution. So um, while I could take a position on one of, one of these two uh, issues of what it should be, I think realistically we're going to have trouble representing the interests of any non-U.S. persons before the FISA court and getting standing to appeal. So you're saying I might have been pejoratively suggesting what the answer is. Um, so, I mean, let's, so let's assume that, the, that, that we can find some kind of maybe middle road consensus on, on who the special advocate represents. Um, and, and, and the appeal issue, I mean, one of the interesting things about the, the legal geekiness here is there's actually a legal geeky answer, too, which would allow appeals without an appellant, right, which is to require the FISA court to certify decisions up to the FISA court review. But we'll save that for, for, post, for lunchtime nerdiness. Um, what about when the, when, the, when the special advocate should show up, um, right? I mean, so one of the objections that has been voiced to the special advocate proposal quite loudly and, and, and repeatedly by Judge Bates, um, a former FISA judge, the director of the administrative office of the U.S. courts, is that this would be monstrously inefficient um, because so many of the FISA court's proceedings are expedited, are quick hits, are facilitated by this dialogue between the government and the FISA court. So, so in which cases would you most want the special advocate to have a voice without necessarily playing into those objections by, by people like Judge Bates? I, I think it's worth pointing out that the vast majority of what the FISC does uh, is not really amenable to adversary process. The vast majority of what the FISC does in terms of sheer numbers is hear individualized applications from the government for surveillance orders directed in, at, at specific people. And the only question before the FISC in those cases is a factual one of whether the government has met the requirement of FISA to demonstrate probable cause that the targeted individual is an agent of a foreign power. 
I don't, I don't think you need adversary process in that situation. Uh, it, 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 you know, closely resembles ex parte warrant applications that occur all the time in uh, the criminal context. And I think that probably deals with most of the, the nature of the objection from uh, members of the intelligence community now that having a special advocate would make the FISA process less efficient. Uh, so I, setting aside those, I think what you, where you probably want uh, an advocate is where the government's application either concerns a new statute or raises novel uh, uh, interpretations of law. I think there is right now a reporting requirement on the intelligence community uh, to report uh, novel interpretations of law to, uh, to the intelligence committees. You could closely track the language that's already used and include it in the FISA advocate proposal. But uh, I, I don't, you know, I, I don't really buy the argument that an advocate would destroy the system. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And delete me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web. And in the process, it helps prevent 
potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code Lawfare 20. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills. It can help you be the best version of yourself. And it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule all you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash lawfare. So, I mean, Alex, would it be enough, I, I guess, I, just to, to fine-tune this, would it be enough if the, the dream statute that we're going to write um, said that the special advocate shall participate in any case in which the FISA court is doing anything other than 
a classic probable cause uh, uh, determination? Not knowing what that universe is, I, I think it's hard to say. The orders that we've seen since uh, June 5th of last year suggest that that solution might work, that the majority of what the court is doing when it's not uh, handling traditional FISA requests implicates programmatic or bulk surveillance. Um, I, I guess you might have a question as to whether every single reauthorization would need a new FISA advocate or whether just the first one would. But, but I actually think your criteria is too strict or, or negatively strict in the sense that I think there are times even when individual surveillance orders where there might be something peculiar about the minimization that's going to take place or the way in which the surveillance is going to be conducted, for can example. You, can you describe what minimization is to folks who aren't FISA, FISA, FISA gurus? Sure. So minimization would be the way in which the government deals with the information that's collected that isn't relevant or germane to why the surveillance is taking place. So if we were trying to look for your phone calls and decided that we were going to pick up all communications coming out of CFP today in order to sort your particular calls out of that uh, out of that collection, what would happen to the rest of the collection? How would it get handled, treated, deleted, searched, destroyed? That's minimization. So there could be aspects of minimization that are at issue. There could be as aspects of the way the individual surveillance is being carried out. For example, if the order required, and I'm just making this up, there's no disclosure of classified information, I promise, just making up fun hypotheticals, but let's say the order required that uh, a, um, a, someone from Time Warner Cable put on a uniform to make it look like they're from the post office and then go to the front door and then if they see nobody there, then have surreptitious entry and then put something in the cable box that'll intercept their communications. Well, it's individualized and targeted at one particular person, but we don't think that that's a, a good way of doing surveillance or that providers should be conscripted into that. So I would think that if we're writing a dream statute, we would write some criteria that the special advocate would use to decide when they would get involved. Does it involve bulk versus individualized surveillance? Is there something novel about the way the surveillance is taking place? Does it place an undue burden on a third party to conduct the surveillance? Are the rights of third parties implicated in a way not implicated in the traditional surveillance order? A criteria, and then they would apply that criteria, determine when to get involved, make a report to Congress every year on how often they got involved and how often they did not get involved, and depending on what we do on the next six questions, maybe the person is subject to removal if they, uh, after three years, have you know, conducted themselves in a way that is either uh, too, too, too burdensome one side or the other. But I guess, Mark, wouldn't that, open up, wouldn't that open the proposal up to the objection that we are then conferring greater procedural rights upon, say, terrorism suspects or agents of foreign powers in this context than on ordinary criminals who don't have the opportunity to participate? in those proceedings? It, it does open it up a little bit, but again, we're talking about a novel area. I mean, the, the Fourth Amendment standards for doing a wiretap order in criminal court are, you know, courts are applying these all the time. A FISA court judge is not in the same position. The requests are novel and different, and um, the po the, an advocate would be in the position to see the repetitive nature of these requests and decide when to get involved. So I, I, it's a little bit vulnerable to that criticism, but it's less vulnerable to the criticism that will be remarkably inefficient because they wouldn't get involved in 1,200 individualized cases a year. They'd get involved in a handful. This is, this is why transparency is so important. This is where I started with. The FISA court has um, reports that they publish each year that have very, very minimal information in them about what the FISA court does. Um, if if and when, hopefully, a, a real strong Office of the Special Advocate is created, it should be outside um, of the FISA, DOJ, intelligence community area, um, maybe look at something like PCLOB with a full-time staff and then contracting out to attorneys. Um, but it also needs to be able to issue reports about how often they are being used and in what general circumstances. And I think there needs to be a lot of discussion about how to do that without running up against 
classified information without saying um, exactly what cases it's being used for, but in how many circumstances that um, special advocate could have gone into court, how many cases there were, and how many cases they actually chose to pursue, and why in as many circumstances as possible. Let me, let me just voice my agreement with um, Mark's uh, revision of my original proposal, which, which, which I agree with. And I, and I would put, you know, place special emphasis on um, uh, allowing adversarial review of, of minimization procedures. The government's uh, frequent public defense of many of the NSA's surveillance programs is that don't worry, even though we have a kind of broad aperture at the outset in terms of the information that we collect, we have this secret set of procedures that protect the privacy of Americans that we apply behind closed doors. Uh, only uh, in the months since the Snowden disclosures has the government released a full set of the minimization procedures for one of the surveillance programs. Uh, but we don't yet have even the full set of minimization procedures, I don't believe, for the traditional FISA surveillance that's been going on for the last 35 years, uh, which is sort of uh, remarkable. So I guess the, 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 the double-barrel transparency uh, uh, point leads me to, to wonder. I mean, there have been objections to special advocate proposals from the sort of not necessary perspective, right? That's the, that's the crux of Judge Bates's objections. Uh, there's a Congressional Research Service report that offers a, a series of, I think, under-theorized constitutional objections and more, I think, relevant. Yeah, well, I, I've written about it. Um, and, and more relevant, I think, pragmatic and policy objections. But it seems like there might be objections from the other direction as well, that a, that a special advocate is just, I mean, you said Band-Aid, right? Um, that it's not just a Band-Aid, but it's, a, it's, it's the wrong Band-Aid, or it's, it's, it's a Band-Aid over the wrong part, of the, over the wrong wound, um, if we want to take this metaphor all the way. Um, I mean, I guess, you know, is, is it wrong for folks to pay so much attention to this idea? Um, or is it okay so long as we realize that this is only part of a larger puzzle? I mean, is, is there a downside to such, you know, sort of broad support for this idea that it might be portrayed as, you know, well, the progressives got something? So the, this idea got brought up very, very early in the NSA surveillance debate that started last June. Um, and it was something that was proposed and thrown out there and got feedback in both directions, either it's unnecessary or it's, it's not right. The thing is, is it is a reform that the administration and the intelligence community agree with going forward. So it's actually something... Well, to a, to a point. I mean, well, they, to a right, point. I mean, so President Obama in his speech says, um, I agree there should be some kind of panel of lawyers who can oppose us in the FISA court, and then no details. But imagine all of the other things that they haven't talked about or voiced support of at all, 702 reform, which they kind of said, we'll look at it, we're going to do it unilaterally, we're not going to go through Congress, she doesn't really need to change. Um, the 215 story is a mess, but when you talk about FISA court reform, They've said, you know, generally speaking, we're okay with this going forward and we can debate what it's going to look like. Um, in that environment and knowing that there are a lot of other things we should fight for, we have a secret court and I think we should try to get a provision and an office put in that's going to be very strong and as absolutely as strong as possible. You know, at the beginning I said I think there are two problems with the FISC. One is uh, a lack of adversariness and the other is a lack of transparency. And if I were to, to you know, I think a, a concern uh, that we discussed at another panel, Steve, was that uh, fixing the first problem will take the pressure off fixing the second problem. And I actually think that the second problem is, is the more important one. Uh, I, I, would be, uh, I would feel better uh, with a um, non-adverse process if the public were at least brought into the conversation so that there, there was an opportunity for public disagreement uh, with interpretations rendered by the FISC or congressional disagreement, um, whereas an, ad, you know, an adversarial process that's entirely secret that comes out with the wrong result doesn't help anyone. So, I mean, Alex, I guess I, I don't disagree with that. I guess the question is whether meaningful reform on the transparency front 
is realistic, um, right? Because, uh, you know, this, it, it, it seems like we, we probably all agree that as between um, a secret adversarial lawyer and much more public engagement, public engagement is preferable, right? But doesn't there have to be some kind of real politic assessment of the likelihood of that kind of reform in order to sort of end up there? I think you're seeing a shift in uh, even the opinions of the intelligence uh, community on this question. Uh, the DNI Clapper has said that the bulk collection program should have been public to begin with. Uh, you know, th there's been a seeming cultural shift within the NSA on the sorts of things that should be public. Uh, but it's, uh, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't give up on that possibility just yet. I just had one point. You said we sort of all agree that, you know, more public involvement would be the right answer and this might be a, a, bet, a solution along that way. I don't know that we all agree with that. I mean, I don't, I don't know that I want to put on my Stuart Baker hat for this panel, but having been on lots of panels you with Stuart Baker, Baker. I, I do. I keep it in the closet. I wear it rarely. Um, but, but, but we are dealing with the harm side of the equation. Right. Like, we should not forget that there is a serious harm side of the equation. And while I don't believe all privacy advocates have blood on their hands, I do believe that exposing the harm side of the equation to the entire U.S. population is not necessarily a good idea, which is why there's some benefit to the special advocate above the transparency. We have somebody who's trusted, somebody who we can expose that harm side to, who can weigh it. And we do believe in a representative government, so the special advocate would be representative. You might want to decide how you want to get them there, but I, I just don't think the harm side of the equation can be exposed to everybody. Well, and this goes back, I mean, this goes back to a point that, that Alex and I have talked, and Amy and I have talked about before, which is, I mean, the, if one views FISA, right, as a grand bargain where it was a deal to bring various surveillance authorities under the law in exchange for the law being secret, right, in exchange for the secret FISA court, in exchange for mostly secret congressional oversight, right, then the question is, do the Snowden disclosures suggest we should just scrap that deal or that we need to adjust the parameters of the deal? Um, and it seems like we're still at the point where we haven't figured out yet, right, where, where we haven't figured out whether the parameters can be adjusted. I mean, clearly the FISA court isn't serving as enough of a check, right? Clearly congressional oversight isn't serving as almost any of a check. Um, and if you guys want, I'll tell you my Mike Rogers story, you know, during the Q&A, um, right? But I guess the, is, this, is it worth first figuring out whether we can fix this system before we say throw it out altogether? I suppose it depends on what you mean by, you know, scrap the system. If, if by that you mean eliminate all secrecy in the oversight of the NSA, I would say no. I, I don't think anyone is seriously advocating that. Um, you know, the, the question is what are the proper bounds of secrecy when it comes to public engagement and what's a proper uh, element of adversarial representation on the other side of the government when it comes to uh, procedures in front of the FISC. Uh, and, you know, I, I agree with Mark that there's, there is always a harm in a, in a democracy of exposing too much. Uh, I think we've just, we've erred on the wrong side of that line over the past uh, 13 years. I mean, I, I suspect we could go on for, forever on this topic, but I, I want to give the audience time for questions and also not detain you from lunch. So um, if there are questions from the audience, we have a microphone. Uh-oh. You're giving me a mic. That's dangerous. Uh, so maybe I'll stand up here so I can put the microphone back in here. Um, thank you for uh, the very enlightening discussion. It actually makes me wonder if 9-11 had happened during FDR's day, if he would have gotten the court pack and plan through. Um, I have two questions. Um, the first is, is there any precedent in either U.S. or a British common law for a non-adversarial court? And the second question is, the state of California has a provision within its constitution uh, 
for an explicit right to privacy. And if California were to interpret that as basically interpret FISA as violating that right to privacy, and I could actually see like Google and Facebook getting behind that after all the Snowden revelations, what would happen? Um, I, I was going to say, as, as the law professor on the panel, um, I, I guess I'm, I'm the one who jumps on the, on the grenade, right? Um, so I'll take the second question first. Um, um, just by dint of the supremacy clause, federal law would supersede state law. Um, even if, um, well, that's up to California. Um, I mean, I think the, the reality is, is that, you know, there are any number of contexts in which states have privacy laws, anti-discrimination laws, any number of laws that are more protective um, of civil liberties of human rights than the federal government's laws are. Sometimes that results in situations where the federal government chooses not to enforce some of its laws, which is how you can have legalized marijuana possession in you know, Colorado and Washington. Um, sometimes it just means federal law wins, and that's just the nature of the, the system we live in, for better or for worse. Um, on the question of precedence for, for unilateral courts, I mean, I think it's worth stressing that adversarialness, I guess that's the word, um, is not necessarily inherent to all judicial systems. Um, it's inherent to ours because we've always thought that it was part of what the Constitution requires. But even there, we've had long traditions of ex parte proceedings. I mean, warrants are the classic example. You know, going back to the founding, warrants were always done ex parte and in camera. Um, the, the difference is that usually you found out afterwards if you were the target of a warrant. One of the interesting pieces of history is that when FISA was first enacted, there were members of the, of the DOJ who thought it might be unconstitutional because there, there was not an adversary. And they ultimately decided that it was constitutional uh, because it was at least individualized, that the court was being called upon to decide a specific case or controversy, whether the government could wiretap a particular individual. Now we have the FISC no longer uh, limiting its rulings to those sorts of cases. And so it does raise a real constitutional question, which we at the ACLU have tried to argue in court been thrown out on standing, of whether uh, the system, at least in a programmatic side, uh, is constitutional because it doesn't have, um, you know, uh, someone on the other side. And one solution would be to have Congress pass those broad procedures. If you look at some of the minimization procedures and targeting procedures that apply to these broad programs, they look like legislation. They don't look like court opinions. Uh, and there's a good argument that they should be legislation. Or, or at the very least, administrative regulation, right? That, 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 right, that the, that the post-9-11 shift in what the FISA court was doing turns it now into what is, in effect, um, a D.C. Circuit-like body that's reviewing administrative action. And so maybe the real answer is to reconceive of modern intelligence laws as administrative law. But that's a, a different panel. Um, on the, the, the paralysis point about the original objections to FISA on constitutional grounds, the real irony there is that the government witness, or at least the former government witness who testified at the 78 hearings, was Lawrence Silberman, um, who then, who said quite overtly he thought it was unconstitutional. Um, now, you know, later Judge Silberman was on the panel of the FISA Court of Review that decided the first appeal in the In Re Sealed case decision in 2003. So things come full circle. I guess he was no longer convinced by the Constitution. There, there's actually a footnote in that decision alluding to his prior constitutional objections and how they had been ameliorated. If the, test, test. if the supremacy clause is so ever-present, then what's the point of states having constitutions? Well, I mean, uh, federal law is not a code. I mean, federal law, there are, there are lots of areas where federal law says nothing. Um, there are lots of places where Congress either hasn't or can't act. Um, and so state constitutions are there to fill in the gaps. I mean, I think everyone understood from the founding that the federal government would act in limited spheres and states would act everywhere else. Um, it's just, you know, the federal government sphere has expanded over time, but it's still not limitless. Um, just look at marriage.
More questions? This, tur this turned into a Prop 8 panel, too. The Mike Rogers story. Um, so I think you, you, you guys all know the story. So I was testifying before the um, House Intelligence Committee last October. Um, this was the first open hearing, I think, that Hipsy had had on, on the surveillance programs. Um, now I'll put my Stuart Baker hat on, because I was sitting next to Stuart at this, at this um, hearing. And the first panel was four government witnesses who were, as you can imagine, very critical of the government's programs. Um, and then the second panel was, was Stuart Baker, Steve Bradbury, and me. Um, you can probably figure out which of those were critical of the government's programs. Um, and so we got toward the end, of the end of the session, and Chairman Rogers was trying to get all of us to say we thought the 215 program was fine, legally, the metadata program. Um, and Steve Bradbury says, yep, and Stuart Baker says, absolutely. And I say, well, it depends. Um, at which point he misquotes Ronald Reagan um, and says it's like the one-armed economist, um, which is actually Truman, right, who said he wanted a one-armed economist, um, who couldn't say on the one hand, on the other hand. I had the temerity, of course, to suggest that, you know, it might actually depend on process and implementation and things like that. Anyway, um, this provoked a little bit of exchange that really pissed him off, at which point he said, well, I think it's telling that in 10 years of this program, no one's ever complained. Um, to which I said, who would do the complaining? Um, and his response, which I think I might get off by a word or two, was, well, obviously your right to privacy can't be violated if you don't know about it. Um, this is the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, right, the chief oversight official in the House for the intelligence community. Um, anyway, um, so I did say I disagreed, um, and if you want to see the whole exchange, uh, look up the... No, so I said, I, said, I said I disagree. If the tree falls in the forest, I think it makes a sound. Um, and if you want to see this whole exchange, uh, the Colbert Reports, October 31st episode, look at the word. Um, it was fun. So I just want to comment on that because it's not on quite... That? I want to comment on that. Not the Colbert Report, oh. but Colbert Report, but, the, uh, but Mike Rogers' comment. It's not an unknown thought in the federal judiciary. You're saying, you know, he, look at him in Congress. Judges will ask the same question. What is the harm that comes to people whose communications were illegally intercepted and then at some point disposed of? That is a recurring question that ju the judiciary asks. And when you think it's just uh, so absurd that the answer is self-evident, think about what you say when you're advocating for a position in front of a court and the judge has that line of questioning. What is the harm? that comes to people whose, surveillance, whose communications are surveilled and then disposed of. If they're used, the harm's easy to articulate. The disposed of harm, and, and there is an answer, but it, it's just not, um, it doesn't go without saying that you have to articulate that for some people. Amy's going to articulate it. Oddly enough, Kevin Bankston and I just wrote a paper about this um, that is going to be published in the next year about how even if, your if you're, when your communications are wet, wrapped up even if they are immediately discarded, it still violates the Fourth Amendment and it's still a search or seizure. And that is where the balance is made. The harm is in just the breaking of the Fourth Amendment, amongst other things. I could probably name two or three other harms um, in that scenario, but by breaking the Fourth Amendment, people are harmed. Hey, uh, Liza, last question. A um, couple things. First, this is on. Um, first of all, in terms of a special advocate being able to kick things up to the Fisker, which is going to be uh, sort of less cozy with the government and you're going to get that chance for a review. Um, I agree that in theory that's important. I think in practice we should be careful what we wish for. We haven't done so well by the Fisker. And I think that's interesting in terms of, um, you know, your observations about them being less cozy. We still have some, some terrible law coming out of the Fisker reversing the lower court um, in, a, in a more sort of pro-government way. So I, I, that's more of an observation. 
Um, but on the, on the question of um, having courts deciding major constitutional questions in secret and without an adversarial party, um, I'm trying to get at the nub of, of what bothers us about that in the, in the Fisk context when you can imagine it happening in the warrant context, in, in the regular criminal warrant context, in the, in the instances of the government wanting to, there are all kinds of things you can imagine where in, in an individual instance the government is really pushing the understanding of the Fourth Amendment when it goes into court and asks for a warrant. For example, as you said, you know, the FedEx person coming in in disguise and going in. You could see that happening in the criminal context where this major sort of Fourth Amendment question is being decided in secret by the court. And it's not necessarily going to ever come out in a criminal trial because maybe there isn't a criminal trial. Maybe the warrant is executed, it turns out this is the wrong person. Or maybe the person pleads out and there's no trial at all. So it's certainly theoretically possible that we have in the ordinary criminal process, courts deciding these major constitutional questions in secret. Are we worried about that? Is there some difference between that and the, and the FISA court setting? Is there a constitutional difference? On your first question, I think, um, you know, uh, no, no, I forgot what I was just about to say. Uh, yeah, so one of the more interesting suggestions I've heard, Liza, is a suggestion that you route appeals to the ordinary federal appellate courts, which would have, I think, the benefit of, you know, putting the appeal in front of a court that is comfortable applying the First Amendment right of access uh, to judicial opinions in a way that perhaps the Fisker, the Fisker is not, although Mark is correct that the Fisker has a much better record than the Fisk does in publishing opinions. Um, uh, you know, on, on the second question, I think, you know, it comes down to notice. It comes down to the fact that in traditional criminal cases, you're reasonably confident that most of what the government does is going to be subject at some point to public judicial review in the context of a criminal case, whereas that isn't the case in FISA. FISA is one of the, you know, is the, is the only surveillance statute setting aside more recent uh, you know, FISA iterations, that does not have... No, but there's the possibility of civil litigation, and that's the notice point, right? That is to say, so, so if the police wrongly search my house, right, if I'm, if I'm not the right person or if the warrant was flawed in some way, I have the remedy, I, I, you know, the notice provides me with an opportunity to sue them for damages. I mean, Bivens, right, the, the landmark um, Fourth Amendment case about constitutional damages from 1971 is exactly that case. Um, right? There's no possibility of that in the FISA regime because there's no notice, or right. at least there's necessarily notice. And in the criminal process, you don't, what you don't have is perpetual non-disclosure orders. Like a warrant requires you to leave it, leave an inventory, but you can get a, a sneak and peek warrant that doesn't require that notice, but then that notice can be delayed, but not indefinitely. The, the FISA process, even the NSL letters, those are the unique aspects where you have indefinite no notice. And that's what I think the major distinction is from the criminal side. So, no, typically not. They have a delayed notice provision. What you might argue is that the, only the provider gets notice and then the user doesn't get notice. So if the criminal process isn't initiated against the user, the notice was only given to the provider. And that's one of the issues with ECPA reform is making that notice go to the user. But it doesn't contemplate a no-notice scenario. You just might make a valid point that the notice is misplaced. But there still is some form of notice that somebody would see. For the record, we do think the notice is misplaced in that context. Um, you know, but it is true that, you know, under – the other problem with FISA is that the government has the option of choosing when it will eff effectively provide notice in criminal cases, because it can always opt not to use uh, that information. So one of the, you know, quirky results is that for the first five years after the FAA was passed, there had never been notice given to a criminal defendant that FAA evidence was being used. It turned out that it's because the government had a very uh, narrow view of its notice obligation 
uh, and you know, misrepresented its notice obligation in front of the Supreme Court or its notice practice in front of the Supreme Court. They've since fixed it, it seems, or at least some of it, and now if, you know, a handful of criminal defendants have gotten notice that FISA Amendments Act evidence is being used against them. One of them is uh, a guy named Mudarov in Colorado who is now challenging uh, the constitutionality of the FAA with, uh, you know, with our help. Um, I think you know, notice might actually solve one of the, prob you know, the problem on the traditional FISA side of when you would want adversarial process. If you just required even delayed notice to U.S. persons whose communications were monitored under traditional FISA, you might then provide the opportunity for later review that would solve some of the problems with having uh, a non-adversarial issuance. So notice is the answer, um, or at least lunch is the answer. Well, um, I'm sure we can keep going, but why don't we uh, stop it there since it's lunchtime. Um, please join me in thanking our panelists for a, a lively conversation. And I'm sure, uh, I'm sure folks will be happy to stick around if you guys have questions you want to come on and ask us after. Thanks. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music was performed by Sophia Yan. As always, please do us a solid and help to spread the word about Lawfare in any way you can. We're grateful for the support. Thanks very much for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.